We live in a moment where dance might seem unimportant or unnecessary. However, I am going to make every possible effort to highlight dance as a key contributor to the evolution of human consciousness. For those of you who are dancers or dance lovers, you know the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual transcendence of dancing and watching dance and how all that influence who we are today. My name is Jorge Crecis. I am a choreographer, lecturer, author, and coach. For the last 23 years, I have been investigating how I could help others how to facilitate those states of consciousness associated to peak performance and flow. In this third season of Towards Vivencia in Conversation With, I am tackling head-on what really interests me. How dance practices can help us, even if it's just in a minuscule way, to evolve as a more conscious species. And given the circumstances, given the state of the world, that's a big task. Therefore, I am not going to try to do it alone. I am inviting world-class dance makers, performers, scientists, scholars, and philosophers in order to deconstruct and speculate if and how dance can be a vehicle to develop human consciousness. If and how, we'll see. Hello, beautiful people. Buckle up, because today we have a masterclass in business values, how we can, as artists, monetize our work and how the performing arts can help the corporate industry and vice versa as well. Today, we have with us a very special guest, Graham Alexander. I had the pleasure to be one of Graham's teacher at London Contemporary Dance School, where he studied dance after having graduated in physics by Oxford University. Currently, he is a vice president at the Beers Group, one of the largest diamonds companies in the world, with over 20,000 people working across 28 different countries. But before being the vice president of the Beers Group, he spent nine years in several consultancies, for instance, PWC, Javelin Group, OCNC, strategy consultants, and consumer goods clients from Superdry to Selfridges to Heineken, but also a variety of other sectors such as the Cabinet Office, Brussels Airport, or First Group. After that, he was working for Lego Group on implementing their commercial strategies. So we have someone who is very seasoned in the business world in big, big names. And in this episode, we talk about that synergy between the big corporates and the performing arts, the bias of thinking about the big corp as the root of all evil, how body practices can optimize cognitive performance, the scarcity blueprint in the dance world, and how much one should charge working for corporate. So we cover a lot in this conversation. Before I properly introduce our guest, here you have a few words from our sponsors. This third season of Towards Vivencia in Conversation With is supported by not one, but two platforms that maximize the power of the World Wide Web and serve dancers and choreographers from all over the world. This season is brought to you by Choreography Online, the online platform designed for choreographers to build an international name and generate income at the same time. 
The first time I was introduced to the idea, I thought, oh, this is genius. Choreographers have to upload one video of the entire piece and one video of themselves or their assistant explaining the choreography, counts, intentions, etc. And that's it, very simple. Anywhere in the world, your choreography can be purchased, learned and performed for however long you would like to license it. Step up your choreography career with Choreography Online. Visit choreography.online. Very simple. On a recent trip to LA, I connected with Gracie and Laura. I know Gracie from way back, but when I got to know what they are up to, I became a true fan and I knew that what they were doing to spread the knowledge about floor work technique is very special. Ground Grooves TV is a virtual studio to expand your floor work practice from anywhere. Explore an ever-expanding library of floor work classes for all levels. Fitness classes to build strength, stamina, and flexibility. Foundation videos to deepen your understanding of mechanics and details. And concept videos to expand your artistry. Start your seven-day free trial by visiting groundgrooves.tv and receive your personalized training program. So, without further ado, Mr. Graham Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing from the heart of London? I'm doing very well, thank you. It has been a busy week, um, but we're getting stuff done. Uh, yeah, I'm in a good place. Thank you very much for dedicating uh, this time to, to talk to us. I'm really excited about this uh, conversation because you are one of the few guests this season who has been a dancer, who has been related very deeply into the dance world. And now it's uh, pretty much not related to the dance world uh, in a everyday life. So I'm really, really interested to hear how this background of yours in particularly in dance is infecting, affecting, or just infusing your everyday life. If I am not wrong, at the moment you are the vice president at the Beers Group, supporting their growth of the retail business. That sounds really, really important, the vice president of something. I don't know many vice presidents. So can you tell us a tiny bit more about what do you do and what is your everyday schedule, diary? What do you do? Uh, mostly I help shops make better decisions that that's the real core of it those decisions could look like how many shops should i open what kind of product should i have should i have only shoes or should i have shoes and uh, trousers and shirts and ties um should i uh, how should i price those goods there are a whole load of decisions that you can uh, you can make on gut feel or you get someone like me and you uh, and and i would and and you have me around to ask some really hard questions and often a lot of numbers and science around that um, to help make a, a better decision. And so I have uh, was a consultant for oof, nearly 10 years. Um, and then I was uh, worked for Lego for a couple of years, um, thinking about uh, like these, these same sort of topics. How do we sort of get Lego into the right shelves and the right places and the right ways. Um, and now I work for De Beers Group, who are um, one of the largest uh, diamond mining companies in the world. Um, and I'm thinking about how we make sure that diamonds get into uh, the hands of people around the world um, as uh, profitably 
um, as possible. Um, and so things that I might look at here is sort of what kind of uh, store should we be having? What should we be doing with those? How should we be collaborating with other um, uh, with other partners uh, from a whole business perspective uh, on helping people to sell their diamonds? So there's a complete circular economy. Almost all of my day is spelt, spent in uh, either in meetings or making PowerPoint slides or in making Excel models, uh, using numbers to tell stories. Um, and a lot of the time in meetings, using those slides to tell stories to uh, persuade people to do something a bit different to how they were doing it before. Thank you very much. A lot to uncover there already. And uh, I'm going to leave for a little bit later the one of the questions that comes to mind because hearing about consultancy, uh, number, crutching, slides, and Excel, vice president, mining diamond. When we talk about all those concepts, I have to confess that I found myself leaning into a bias, a bias that I think is not only mine, but it exists in the collective unconscious, mainly within the people who consider we consider ourselves more liberal-oriented, creative artists. And that is that the big corporations are the evil identity that is driving the world, nature, and social and humanistic values to the abyss, something like the antichrist of what humanity should be. I'd like to talk about it maybe later, because in one hand I find myself leaning into that notion and on the other hand, I know that it's not true, that many amazing people are leading those big corporations and some of those industries are doing very, very valuable work in the world at large, in a very humanistic and value-rich ways. But before that, excuse my ignorance about that environment, but can you tell us a little bit, in a brief way, because that's not part of our conversation, but in a brief way, what's the difference between consultant, number crutcher, and retail strategy specialist? Oh gosh, I mean, often they're all the same thing, um, but sometimes they're not. So um, a consultant, uh, so there, there are lots of different types of business consultants who specialize in different things, whether you have a sort of technical specialism like building financial models, um, or you have a a sector specialism like I only work for retailers or I only work in uh, on improving people's supply chains there are lots of different specialisms that people have um, I my my specialisms um, include retail uh, I have a particular specialism specialism around analytics and big modeling um, and uh, Yeah, those, uh, sorry, those are the two things. That was a terrible way to answer. I have a specialism around uh, retail um, and uh, analytics and modeling. So as, let me ask uh, you. Things I go to market with. So let me ask you, how a guy with a degree in physics by the Oxford University and a degree in contemporary dance by London Contemporary Dance School, University of Kent, end up being the vice president at the Beers Group and telling people, what products they have to sell, how and when? Firstly, it was a process of discovering that this job even existed. And it took me, um, I remember 
being at university, hearing about this job years ago, never really understanding what a consultant was. No one in my family was a consultant. Um, why would this make sense? It's just some people were being expensive. Don't get it. Um, and I just went around careers fairs um, and talked to people. And I went to a, and my kind of default was, well, because I've got a physics degree and I don't know what to do, I'll at least try and make a lot of money doing it, doing something I don't know or care about. So that's kind of a starting place. Um, and I found, I was at a finance careers fair um, and someone uh, someone said, oh, we've got this consulting stand. And I went, okay, that sounds interesting. I'll find out. And they had a like a prep day that was about how you, uh, understanding the industry a bit more and how you, um, how you make a better application. And I went went along to that and went, oh, hold on. These are all the things that I've been looking for. It's quite varied. Um, I get to not just, I, I get to sort of have my like intellectual sort of number side is, is will be fulfilled and supported, but it's also about relationships and making connections and talking to people. Um, and I went, ah, oh, this is, this is this is it, um, and so I applied to lots of places and got rejected at lots of places. Um, so I, I, I don't, really don't want to paint this as a this arc as 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 easy or um, that it all happened seamlessly. Um, but I was accepted by the graduate scheme at PwC, who are building up the sort of graduate management consulting people. Uh, stayed there for six years. I became part of the. Uh, the strategy practice, part of the modeling and analytics practice within that. Um, and and I worked with some really inspirational people who um, who let me into both new sectors, but also new ways of thinking. And I just came to really enjoy the retail sector. Um, it, I just thought it was fun. I loved that I can make a recommendation and uh, six months down the line, I can walk into a shop and go, I was part of that. It wasn't me that did it. It wasn't me that sort of followed all the things through. But I was a little bit of that. Uh, and that's something I was really proud of. Broadly speaking, that, that's what I've been doing for um, for the last decade. Thank you for that. Um, something that I really enjoyed about your answer was describing in bullet points what attracted you from the corporate world. And except one of the items that you, um, that you mentioned, all of them are very similar to the dance art world you were talking about is varied. So you can do lots of different things within uh, different projects. Uh, it fulfills your numbers passion. Uh, I mean, dance is a lot of mathematics, but it can be a, any other area that fulfills your intellectual uh, needs. It's about the relationship with people, which is fantastic. And you mentioned a couple of times the money making about consultant being expensive people, which is the item that doesn't fit up with the, um, with the art world. Let's get back to the notion of the big corporation as the enemy, as the root of all evil. I have to confess that this has been one of my bias for a long time. Coming from a working class uh, family, being a survival artist all my life. But the more 
I have been in between those two worlds, let's say the art world and the corporate, the more I realize that there is a synergy that is very little explored and exploited. Yes, there are some artists who give some workshops in corporates and then are corporates people who give lectures and, and help artists how to develop their business. But I think there is something bigger and a much more, uh, a much more symbiotic relationship to explore. So before we get into why you got into the dance world and when, why you went away from it, what is, in a nutshell, that synergy, that relationship that you can find that is working for you in your everyday life with the work that you're doing, but also with the knowledge and the background that you have in the arts? I'm going to give you two answers at kind of two different levels. So there's the answer at the, at the kind of industry level in the sense that you'll often find uh, particularly actors, um, but of, uh, but sometimes also movement specialists and sort of variety of um, of artists coming in to help corporate people do something better, whether that's helping us to um, to have better conversations or whether that's helping to understand our body language or whether that's helping to uh, find inner, inner calmness or whatever. There's a variety of things. And, and I suspect that's true back the other way in the sense that in the arts world, there are a couple of business people who are coming in and going, actually, when maybe you could make a bit more money this way or, or broaden your market this way or whatever. And so there's this sort of almost superficial um, like injection that goes between the two. I honestly think that that's underexploited, that we don't sort of listen enough that way. It's all, I, but I'm not surprised that that continues to be the case just because of momentum and the ways people are thinking. So that's your kind of big picture. Th then if we kind of talk in a, um, like me personally, my world, I remember sort of very vividly, I was part of training a new cohort of graduates. So this is three or four years in, and I went back to be a tutor to uh, graduates like me a few years ago. And I remember sort of giving an introduction and people um, and people saying, oh, so, so which degree do you find more useful at work? Um, is it physics or is it dance? Ha ha. Uh, with the sort of assumption that there's no way I could possibly find uh, dance more useful than physics. And I, and I think that's so totally wrong. I, I don't really need quantum mechanics to do my job. I haven't needed to for a long time. I do need to be physically present in a room influencing people every day, pretty much all the time. A lot of the skills and the thinking and the, the knowledge and the way you look at the world is incredibly helpful to kind of deconstruct the choices that you're making. One of the things I think is very it's a shame is that in the corporate world, almost no one ever talks about what you physically do. We'll talk about what you write down on slides, talk about what you say. People might even talk about the tone of voice, but, uh, particularly if someone's like very good at speaking or is people that you get uh, a bad vibe through, through the way they speak. Um, I'm sure we can all sort of picture a person like that um, or a moment like that, but almost never does anyone ever talk about how did you stand? Where were you in the room? What, what was your posture? How were you physically in that room? To the point that I think that there's almost no 
people don't have a language for it. There's so little conversation I can't, uh, that no one has the words to be able to accurately describe it. Um, and I think there's also a bit of fear around sort of talking about physicalities and things like that. Um, that's all wrapped up together. Uh, and I think that's that's a real shame because almost all of the research uh, goes on about how much more insight we get from body language than we do from words. And so, and there are a few things that have started to sort of popularize it. If you think about uh, power posing and you think about um, lean in, and so there are a few moments like that. But these are sort of the like very isolated, very specific things. Um, that don't really help people to have a, a broader conversation or more usefully so, still to be able to reflect on themselves in a what am I doing in this space kind of way. And it's something that you're very conscious uh, when I, I using it or you think that it's something that it's so embedded in you that you are using it without being aware but when you see other people that brings that comes to your awareness. Uh, so it's 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 a bit of all of that. Um, so there are times that I notice me doing things and go, well, that's interesting. Um, and there are times when I make deliberate choices about how I am or how I place myself to have an effect. Um, and there are times when I look at other people and go, it's really interesting the, what their posture is telling me in a, uh, they have, they have, ended up in this way, maybe that's giving me a little bit of a hint to what their intentions are or what they're looking looking for. I am aware of uh, client confidentiality and uh, the ins and outs of corporate that shouldn't leave the room. But I would like you to tell me uh, as much as you can or as much as you are comfortable with how that background, that awareness that you have with your body language, with the other people's uh, language, with the position, helped you around May 2019 in a board level strategy workshop that uh, you were telling me about before the recording. Yeah, so this is, it, so it, it's a particular moment, it was uh, a part of my consulting career, working for, a, working for a client and helping them to establish their vision for the next few years. Um, and there have been lots of interviews and lots of discussion around what that could be and lots of work and science behind the insights that we brought into this board meeting. And I, I was the engagement manager, so I was the guy standing up, but there are also partners from my company in the room um, who were the intellectual superstars in, in that space. And you've got the CEO and the chairman and uh, the head of IT, like all the head at, at areas. And we're in, the, in that room for probably two hours, I think. Um, so it's a room with maybe maybe 20 people and I'm on my feet for that entire two hours um, and I've got a, a big screen uh, behind me and I've got a load of slides that are sort of things that I can talk to um, but in that room the most important thing is the listening to what how people are reacting and picking up bits of that and going, ah, so there's a bit from what's on the slide and a bit of what you've said and a bit from what this person has said and uh, being able to kind of join all that together. Um, I have a, a moment of, uh, a particular moment I remember where I sort of summarized back something the, um, the chairman had said and in a way that helped them to move their 
their vision forward another step and be a bit more clear and a bit more struggling to find the right word let's say aligned on where they wanted to go as a company um that sort of workshop environment and that that's you you've, you've got kind of the uh a very very loose script you've got a structure better is a better word um but the rest of the show is improvisation and a lot of the skills from the dance world and from contact improv and improv in general of how do you choose the right moment to bring the right person in when when are, when are you needed to be there and when are you needed to shut up um and what is the what value are you adding at each of these points a lot of those skills all mesh together um skills isn't the right word experiences sort of mesh together and sometimes they work out really well and that was one of those times uh, you were mentioning before uh that in the corporate world uh, it's often talk about how you present um the the language that you use but not very often it's talk the way that you stand the body language even if there are some uh, uh, workshops or some um, information about about that particularly Coming back to the collective consciousness idea of corporate, sometimes we have the idea that are people that are completely disembodied, that they don't know anything about the bodies, that they they are gray and working in a chair and not happy at all. But actually, that is not the reality. I know lots of people in corporate who are really active uh, in, in many different sports. Yourself, you have uh, quite a lot of experience with uh, extreme sports. And, uh, and and it's people who really enjoy their work many times. And it's, it's a lot of fun and, and very creative. So can you tell us, and then I will ask you the opposite question, but can you tell us the pros of being in the corporate world in a personal level, how that affects your day, your your every day at home afterwards, your holidays, the time that it gives you and the activities that you are involved, you personally, but also your colleagues. What, what, what is the picture of the 21st century corporate consultant, uh, retail strategist? Give us the blessings. <laughs> I really enjoy what I do. Um, there are good days and there are bad days. Um, the... I love that the work I do changes the world a bit. And hopefully I change it a bit for the better. I love that I find it hard and that I grow. And I and it's not a, a single dimension of I get better at typing numbers into a spreadsheet. I, I'm growing as uh, being able to, how I sort of engage and influence people. I'm growing with my um, understanding of the, the retail market I'm growing with, um, the way that I build relationships, there's so many dimensions. Um, and that's, that, that growth is, is super fun. I kind of want, one of the things I, I really want to call out is that I don't think that everyone loves a corporate job for the same reason. And I don't think that everyone loves a corporate job. Um, and, and I don't think either of those things are bad. Um, some people do these kind of jobs because they get to leave at five o'clock and have, have evenings with 
their family, their loved ones. Some people do these because they get other bits of satisfaction. One of the things I really in, found so, so interesting, um, I remember working with one of uh, my mentors and um, he and he said to me, oh, I find solving problems really frustrating. I really don't enjoy it. And he did. A, a lot of the time he solved things. He was a fantastic teacher and facilitator. Um, and uh, But the realization that the thing that I got great like satisfaction and pleasure for i've solved a thing i've made it a bit clearer i've made a bit of a difference um that that was a frustrating experience for him and realizing that there are a whole like array of differences that i di didn't even know were there um in terms of what people would get satisfaction from and i think that's totally true as much in the arts world as it is, is in the corporate world um so i think there are frankly so many different spaces that people can get what they want from it um, that I, I wouldn't want to uh, promise anything about this world because uh, I think it's about finding your place in it. So the other blessing um, is that one of the things I have in, I realized uh, later I've really enjoyed is that a lot of my corporate life is a performance. This is a gig. Um, this is that 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 two-hour meeting I talked about before. I get to do that one time. I can't do it again. That 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 meeting will never happen again. In that in that way, in that environment, with that background. And so there's there is a real performance pressure in in places. There's adrenaline. There's preparation. There's thinking it through. It's 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 a performance. If you're trying to do something that changes minds, that's a that is a moment in time and an opportunity that you can't fully script. You can't fully um, know what's going to come up, and it, but it is a performance. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you slip and fall, um, and sometimes you make the world a bit better. I love that you said that because if I take one thing that it really helped me to grow as a, as a human being, as a businessman, as a, as a partner, as a, as a friend, as a family member from the dance world is that performance feeling is one chance. Uh, I remember I started teaching at the place and many people telling me, oh, you're very young to stop dancing. And it's like, and stop performing. Like, what are you telling me about? I have 25 beasts looking at me like, what are you going to be doing now? That, that's a real performance. So I'm very glad that you mentioned that. So tell us a little bit about the courses. What, what's difficult about your life as, uh, because of your job now? Yeah, so there are a couple of things and they're all like very simple human stuff. Um, sometimes the politics is really painful. Um, I'm sure this is completely familiar across the dance world as much as it is in, uh, um, in, in the corporate environment. Um, sometimes people get you down. The other one is... I'm aware, I'm not quite sure how much I should work on this, um, that my, the achievements that I have, particularly in my work, are constituted a large part of my identity. Um, and that therefore I feel a bit extremely insecure about am I doing enough? Uh, and, and frankly, fearful about what if I, if I left this, if I changed, would I, would I therefore not have value? Do I only have value because of, because of the title I have achieved, because of 
um, the the bits I've got racked up on my CV are they enough? All of that, um, and it's quite it can be quite easy to end up in that state. Um, but at the same time, I I think that's just a a, a human condition piece, and um, some people are are more sensible and care less about it. I hear you, and I thank you for the vulnerability because that identity piece it's really common in the performing arts as well, right? When someone is about to leave the job as a performer, many times it's not about it's because I love being on a stage every night, which as well, but it's like, well, if I don't do that, who am I? And the same thing happens with um, injuries. When someone gets injured in the performing arts world, the major problem is like, now what do I do? What is my value? Um, which is massive. If I just add a tiny bit, uh, and I think I'm intellectually aware, my head knows that I have value, whether it's to my friends or it's some of the skills that I've picked up, even if I, uh, even if I changed and did something else. But sometimes my heart doesn't. Um, and and I would encourage anyone who's going through that time at least to remember that your head probably knows it even if your heart doesn't. We have heard the blessings and we have heard the curses that your current professional occupation brings you. We have also agreed that the synergy between big corporates and the performing arts world is yet to be exploited and explored. That's why a few years ago, I decided to utilize how performing arts help anyone to optimize their cognitive performance, meaning how they can train their leadership skill, increase their motivation, creativity, recover faster from bad days using the conduits of the body. And that is the very aim of this podcast. Explore how performing artists can help people who are not working with their body six to eight hours a day to trigger those flow states, to condition their minds through their bodies, how certain physical practices can help you to anchor your identity and your worth regardless of what's happening outside. In the first episode of this season, Hofes was talking really nicely about his values and he articulated really well how he can now distance himself from the persona and the public image. That is our goal in Towards Juventia, how we can help anyone to increase their cognitive performance through the conduits of the body and the use of neurophysiology. From your perspective, Graham, because you are you have that experience of the performing arts world, you were telling us the blessings, you were telling us the curses. What do you think that synergy could go deeper into? both ways so the performing arts world could help much more you and your colleagues and how you and your colleagues can help much more the performing arts industry what is the next step what is the future what is the utopia that's a tough question so i would really like if people became more aware of i think there was just some small things that are like becoming more aware of the space people are in and that there are like some relatively small changes that you don't have to do every day, but sometimes are useful um, that could help you think in a different way that might help you unblock something. Whether that's going, actually, I need to be in a different space today 
I need a bigger room. I need to be outside. I need to take my laptop and sit outside. How would that change how you work? How would that give you, um, how would that help you refresh and re-engage in the hard thing that you're doing, the boring thing that you're doing? Um, to actually, I need to come up with some new ideas. So um, changing your spaces is useful. The most useful thing is knowing that you need to think about it. Um, and so I, I'd, I'd almost love if there was kind of a, uh, a cheat sheet of when you're feeling like this, try this. Um, and it's uh, so one of the things I try to do when I'm having a tough time is I try to meditate. I don't always manage to make the sort of mental leap from I'm having a tough time to now is a good time to go meditate. So, so it's it's never going to work 100% of the time. But I wonder if there's a way to to help people remember to shake up their experiences and do something different that would help them do the thing that they're looking to do anyway. And I wonder if there's like a if by helping people feel more comfortable doing something a bit different, that actually we create a bit more openness. I think that might be a a nice thing. It's it feels like there are a lot of entrenched behaviors that make it very hard to bridge the sort of art corporate environment. Um, and I also really strongly think that there's a lot of perceptions both ways that um, that are unhelpful, like that anyone who's in corporate is bad. Um, and everyone in the performing arts is a gypsy that don't care. It's stupid. Don't, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so so clearly wrong um i find it very frustrating when people talk about intelligence as iq as as if that's the only form of intelligence i i'm imagining a particular person in my mind here but there are some people who have an incredible intellectual ability to see someone doing something physically in a space and repeat that i know i couldn't do it even when i was doing it every day um and but that is that's a mental exercise that's that um and it's it's part of intelligence um and i think by yeah i get frustrated when people limit it to can you do an iq test it's just wrong i guess one of the difficulties or at least one of the difficulties that i've encountered when i approached a corporate world i i was lucky to work with people from apple here in spain or a couple of architect firms and lawyers in the uk accountants and one of the major problems that we encounter is resources how do we take all these people out of their jobs to work with you for two, three, four hours. I mean, it's not about the money that they're going to be paying me as a facilitator. It's about all the time, all the time and, and this, the, the work that is not done while these people are in those workshops. Uh. So I get really passionate about this because there's this thing about like hard skills and soft skills and hard skills are, can you do numbers? Um, and soft skills are uh, not important. Um, and pretty much all the research sort of at a like corporate level what what makes people most successful it's it's the eq it's uh it's the empathy it's it's the soft skills it's how i um write an email that makes people go yeah of course i'll do that um it's how i talk to someone in a way that um that uh, that brings them on board with your idea or makes them feel motivated or cared for or whatever um and the 
and it and it is quite hard uh persuade's the wrong word but to uh persuade people that taking two or three hours out of their time doing their sort of hard skills work to do soft skills work pays back and almost uh, almost always it does um the but here's a genuine question in your experience how useful how sustainable and how long term is that change i tell you why because my experience when i go into the corporate world or with athletes the ones that i can see a real change in when we were for nine months onwards there, there is a time there is a skill that takes to get in there unfortunately i don't have the data of what happens with the companies and with the individuals that i work with three or four hours and how that is still used and applied six months later or nine months later so what is your experience about this actors workshop that come here soft skills workshops uh, that is a one-off for three or four hours how impactful is that in the long term yeah it's 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 really tough um so i get a one of the things i and this is a viewpoint not a fact base i get a bit frustrated when when bosses say send people off to do things um and then uh, send their the juniors off to like do their soft skills uh, and then expect them to come back and then practice these without the boss having any understanding of what they're that they're living in or or continuous support to keep applying that exactly exactly and it's that uh, and i think the thing that's most helpful is when you when you end up in mentoring or uh, mentoring or continued challenge relationships in a sort of supportive challenge way that's having someone around to go it was really interesting what you did then did you think about this and just like prompting back to the things that are going on i think that can be really helpful uh, and that can make learning much more long-lived and make it easier that that learning becomes embedded in what you're doing every day all the time so that it's so that the impact is long-lasting i i don't think that's often done it's rare it, it which is a shame um there are some lighter touch things that you can that can be done around how to sort of coming out of the workshop what are the ways to remind remind people and i think yeah there's uh i don't want to get too much into the sort of discipline of training i think a lot of what's there's a lot of stuff that's done there that doesn't really work um when people have busy day jobs and uh and i think there's a a challenge here that uh yes it is it is hard to design um mechanisms to remind people to do something they're not used to doing that said when you help someone go through something uncomfortable um and go oh wow that that thing that was uncomfortable i thought was madness that really works Th then that can turn into a like a nugget that can stay with people for a long time and so maybe there's a bit of we're too ambitious and we want people to learn a lot but actually that little nugget that stays for a long time that memory that thing that they remember that's enough uh, and i'll just give a tiny example try and bring it to life i can't remember if this is a, i think it's a, a training rather than a book um and the what they're trying to get us to say in interviews was um tell me about it 
um, because what that doesn't do is ask a closed question like, did you uh, did you do this? And it sort of it create and it also creates space for someone to answer whatever they think is the most interesting bit of it. You're not funneling the question at all. And and just um, having on the, the question, just tell me about it, putting air quotes around that, like, tell me about it. That sounds like a stupid thing to say when it's written down. And when someone forces you to do it and you just watch someone open up on the topic and you discover the things that you were looking for, you start going, oh, wow. And now I say, tell me about it all the time. It's really useful. I use it in my personal life. I use it in work life just uh, because it, it it's a lovely way to open people up to a topic they're looking for. It's a tiny nugget. It's um, four words. Um, and that stuck with me. I love that. And for people who are listening this podcast uh, very often, if they listen more than uh, one episode, probably they can see that one of my habits is, okay, this and this happened in your life. Can you tell me more about it? If I add, uh, can I add just a tiny thing? Uh, one of the things that I miss slightly is when we talk about uh, sort of art and science, hard and soft skills, there's a load of those things like that. So tell, tell me about it. There's a bit of an art to how you deliver that. And that that's, you can kind of think of that, that as an art. What's really exciting is then when you go, and what's the science? And you go, actually, if I deconstruct what I've done there, it's an open question. It's enabling people to choose what they're talking about. Like there are, uh, and I, I, I get a real kick out of really deconstructing why is something working? What could I therefore do that applies the same principles? That's really exciting. And I love kind of the wordplay and the testing around that. You just lead perfectly into what I was about to say, because I wanted to share with you one of my dreams. And that is that in every office in the world, in every big corporation, there will be a department in charge of the body, the movement, and the healthy practice of helping every member of the company to develop mentally and spiritually through the conduits of the body. I imagine the example of an established department like uh, human resources or the legal teams, a movement department that support groups or individuals during tough times to develop those soft skills as well, to make them more creative, those people like yourself are terribly smart, very clever, the people that you work with. So imagine adding the next layer, how we can optimize the performance even more through the conduits of the body. We would have superhumans. So I have made one of my life mission to figure out how to do that, how to implement a body department in every single office. But for now, I think it's not only about helping how people stand in the room or how they change the spaces when they are a bit stressed or overwhelmed or they are a bit blocked, but also developing their self-awareness. You were saying before uh, that you wish that there was that there were a cheat seat that tells you what do you have to do when you feel in a certain way? But I have encountered many times that the first obstacle is knowing how one feels, how one is at any given time, how we feel, what our bodies are signaling to us. And that's what I am fascinating and that's what the last 20 years has taught me is that dance in particular, uh, performing arts, but dance in particular, make us very, very sensitive to those changes. 
sometimes oversensitive, but that's the conversation for another time. But how dance can help us to be more aware of what it means to be me. And that is the most spread definition of consciousness. What is to feel, what it what it feels to be me. What do I think? What are my behaviors? Almost revealing the things that we cannot see. I believe that the performing arts, uh, dance in particular, is a perfect vehicle for that. And in this podcast, we are talking a lot about the science behind those flow states and how body practices can help you with that massively. And that is what I would like to ask you now about other body practices. I know that since you left the contemporary dance industry, you have been really active and practicing different extreme sports. For instance, kite surfing. I've seen some pictures of you kite surfing that I have to confess, it is my latest passion. I'm really into, uh, I'm really into it at the moment. You have done triathlons and I think you also completed an Ironman. Can you tell me what is the kick that you get from those practices and how those practices are also helping you in your current occupation, in your current life? So I, um, what do I enjoy about this? I think I, I came to a realization that I enjoy having odd hobbies. I like being a, a person in the room that makes someone go, you do that? Um, and, and enjoying that, that, that creates an enjoyment for me, knowing it and the moment of, of realizing it. Um, and so I tend to, I've, I've realized also that I don't have time um, to spend eight hours a day doing any one of these things. So I've got quite, uh, so firstly, I've got choiceful about only doing one thing at once. Life is very busy at the moment. And so if I try and do more than one thing at once, I end up just frustrating myself because I'm not doing anything very well at all. Secondly, um, I, I realized that there's a curve of, uh, of knowledge, of capability, of experience. Um, and at the start of learning a new skill, you learn a lot um, and you, your capability grows relatively quickly. Um, it's a very sort of steep uh, learning curve. Um, and that's exciting. It feels great. You feel like you can do something new every day and um, every time you go and practice or you, you really see the change. Um, and that's really nice. Feels gratifying. Um, and when it learning curve starts to plateau, I'll, I'll stop. Um, and that's not stopping in the out of fear that I couldn't do more, though often I'm aware of my capabilities and, uh, and couldn't, but... Uh, um, but more a conscious choice to go, no, I'm just going to, uh, I, I really enjoy the process that I've gone through to get here. I enjoy that I can now do a bit of this new thing. Um, and, uh, and now I'm going to go and learn something new. Um, there are some things that I do that are functional in the sense of, so I've done a couple of tri triathlons and I uh, would describe myself as having survived a half Ironman, um, not, uh, not because that's a thing that I want to do every day, but because I needed a target to get my ass off the sofa um, and to force myself to take time to exercise and to be fit again. 
Why is it important for you to be fitter be beyond the, the obvious reason of not dying of a heart attack or? Well, I'm doing the functional stuff so that I can do the cool shit so that I can go and like do aerial silks, which is amazing fun and I'm terrible at, but you know, sort of climb up to the top of the silk and then wrap myself in something and then go, wee, which is great fun. Um, and there's no reason beyond that then I don't feel I, I, I'm happy that I don't feel that I need to be great or world class. I can I can do it because I enjoy it. It's just a fun thing to do, um, and it's satisfying when I do bits of it well. Is that the reason why Graham Alexander ran away with a circus to learn contemporary dance, and and when the steep curve became too difficult or plateauing, decided to run from the circus? I don't think it's quite that. One of the things I find helpful now in not uh, feeling like I need to do everything at a world, uh, sort of my hobbies at a world-class level is I feel like I like had my time when I ran away to the circus, which was, was dance school. Um, and so I feel like I've got my, yeah, my runaway to the circus credit, like ticked off. And now I, uh, now I need to sort of carry on, um, uh, have a, uh, a more consistent life. Uh, so going to dance school was was something I knew I'd regret for the rest of my life if I didn't do. Um, I went because I was deeply passionate about what I did, I remember. Um, but I also remember very vividly being interviewed for the school and one of the, one of the teachers I respect very much uh, said, it, um, said in the interview, you have to remember that there's a difference between a passion and a career. And it took me a while to find that out um, and realize that this was a this for me was a passion, not a career, and that there were bits of the way the arts world and specifically the dance world worked that would mean it was not, uh, would mean that it was something that I wouldn't be happy doing full time. And I also am self-aware enough to know that I wasn't as good as I would have wanted to be or as, or as good as uh, I think that I would have needed to be. Um, to make that a career that I enjoyed. Um, so, yeah, that was that was sort of the the coming in and the going out, and then and there's quite a few bits of sort of self discovery in choosing that. I think that going to dance school was one of the best decisions I made. Being at dance school was one of the hardest things I did, and choosing not to stay trying to be a dancer was one of the best decisions I made um, because. I only very rarely feel feel regret that I didn't stay in it longer. I feel comfortable with that decision. Where that passion came from, uh, from once again, a guy who was doing a physics uh, degree in Oxford, where, where that came from about the contemporary dance uh, world, which not many people knows about. And also you were mentioning something about particularly the industry that you didn't like uh, about becoming a professional dancer. So uh, let, let's start let's talk again about those two spectrum. What is the thing that makes you passionate about and what are the things that you saw in being a dancer that you didn't like and it's like, that's not for me? Yeah, so I I came into dance through theatre. So I did a lot of acting and performing when I was, when I was quite young. Um, and then I remember at, at sick form, I didn't have, uh, there wasn't a theatre studies degree. You could only do performing arts form studies something like that um, as an A-level. And so um, 
and I was like, oh, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll do the dance module for the first year and then I can drop it, it'll be okay. Um, and I remember having re like doing a workshop with Yale Flexer um, and just being like, wow, I want to do more of this. Um, and then going and joining a youth dance company and, uh, and then spending most of my degree um, hiding from my physics lecturers to be able to be in theatres. I'm going to stop you there for a second because I really would like to go more into the Jael Flexer workshop. Wow, I want to I do more of that. More of what? What is the thing that hooked you? I don't know. Uh, so I remember a moment, and this is slightly later, but I remember a moment when I realized that I, I didn't need words to be able to express a thing on, uh, to be able to express a thing, to have a narrative. Um, and that was kind of the moment I stopped being an actor and started being a dancer. I don't think I've ever quite interrogated what the wow was. Um, yeah, I can't quite remember what it was. That gave us the answer, actually, that it's more a feeling, something that you can articulate. It's that the experience of the experience, what blew you away, that we cannot put it into words. It's, yeah, I really like the experience and I remember that I really like it, but I don't even remember what I like it. It was just the enjoyment of the moment, which is what we were talking about before, the flow states. Yeah, it's a real gut feeling. It, I, I can't, uh, I struggle to, to disentangle it. And if you could disentangle what you didn't like about the dance industry? I realized that the uncertainty I would really struggle with. I knew that that would weigh on my, on my personal life in a way that I would find difficult to manage. And it's, it's doable, but difficult. Um, I also thought that I wasn't good enough. Um, there were some things I was, I was okay at, but I didn't think I was good enough in a field that is filled with some uh, amazing people and, uh, and relatively few jobs. Um, and the last thing, I think the thing that really clinched it, because I can be very stubborn um, when, when I feel like I should be, uh, I, I'm, I'm really struggling to find a good word for this that's not too negative. I remember feeling bored going through rep um, in a way and sitting there going, I, I need a bit more variety than this. The idea of doing the same rep piece for weeks, weeks, months, years I, I realized would just not be enough variation for me and I, I i don't in any sense want to disrespect that the experience of going through that every day is it's different and it is unique because your um your 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 body and mind are in a different place each day but that difference wasn't enough um and i think it wasn't stimulating a part of my a part of my in, intellectual brain that I wanted more change and variety in. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, so it's a, a part of my mental process that I, I felt I didn't get enough of. Thank you. The other question is about something you mentioned before, and I think now it's the time to dig deeper into it. And it is about values and ethos. You said before that you wanted to do your job in a way that makes a difference, that hopefully through what you do, the world is a better place. And I do not struggle to think a few reasons as to why the arts and the practice of the arts have a positive impact in the world, but how a retail strategies can also make a dent in the world and make it a better place. 
it is a bit beyond my comprehension, I have to confess. And I do apologize once again for my bias and my ignorance. I do understand that in a very human level, doing your job with compassion, with love, with dedication, with respect, will impact in the people around you. But how exactly the job itself, how to design a new retail strategy, can have a positive impact in the world? In the way that you said it before, it was really powerful and I want to honor that and I want to genuinely know more about it. So tell us more about those values, those ethos, that mission of changing the world for the better through your job. Yeah, so I know that I, I really enjoy and get a personal kick out of like solving a problem. There's something we're trying to achieve growth. We're trying to sort of sell more product or um, we can't quite work out how to engage this type of consumer or whatever a, a problem. Um, I get a real kick out of going, actually, you need to think about it like this and helping people have a new worldview. And that sort of moment of working out, ah, this is a new way. Um, that's, that's something I, I really, really enjoy. I've been incredibly fortunate. I've worked with some incredible brands. Um, Lego is definitely one of them. De Beers is another um, that uh, bring joy into people's lives. I know that my personal desire to to solve problems and to create would mean that I would work in less desirable industries. I think we talked a little bit about sort of the corporate world before and the reality that it's very human. Um, it's really easy to look at a supermarket or a mining company or um, any other kind of big industry and go, it's huge. It must, it's just like faceless people. There, there's, there, it's just this sort of corporate entity. Um, and forget the reality that it's just people in there and often fewer than you'd think. Um, I've worked for a, a couple of supermarkets and I've seen how excited a buyer can get because they've got an email from a single customer saying how much they loved something that they brought or how much they wish there was this other thing that they were doing. Um, and remembering that when you're talking about a company, you're not really talking about a company. You're talking about the individual human beings that sit inside that and make that, um, and make that, that world a bit different. And, and so I try within what I do that, I can uh, make connections or suggest things that not just give me a personal satisfaction in sort of solving a problem or doing a thing, um, but also help help us to do something better. So I don't want to go too far, but there's, De Beers does some amazing, amazing work and sustainability. Um, I'm privileged to work quite closely with the sustainability team um, at, the, at the moment, and there's some great people there. And I was at uh, a lecture about uh, rewilding at the Royal Institution. Uh, and so I came back and went, ah, um, let me connect these people. And now you've put me, uh, and, and I helped them get in touch with someone who's at the cutting edge of that research. That means that we, uh, as a company, can make the world a bit more better, can not just a offset and mitigate, but really making the world better Leaving, leaving the world a better place for us having been there. 
are things that I'm really proud of. Uh, whether that uh, so there was a school project in um, in uh, indigenous indigenous communities in Canada, and I helped to get them Lego to do science with, uh, and just and that was emails and speaking to people and making some connections. Those things are the small human bits of how we can make the world a little bit better. One of the most reductionist arguments would be that actually the state of the world is like that because of the big play of the corporates going against uh, small communities or small retailers and a lot of profit for uh, only a few people. And this is my latest genuine question for you as Graham Alexander. Do you think, I, I do believe that um, some corporates are turning around and, and, and having amazing um, initiatives. My question for you is, is it too little too late? Oof. Uh, I mean, firstly, yes. Um, but the, so I think it's really worth remembering that there are some companies who are very good at greenwashing doing very little and there are some companies that are doing a lot and not talking about it very loudly or not getting credit for what they're doing um so the it's not quite a having been on the inside in a few places it's not quite as simple as what does the press have you believe so that's kind of a, a first point um is it too little too late so i get I can be quite critical of the short-termism of society uh, and societal structures. So if we think about the ways in which corporate, corporates act, corporates broadly act for quarterly earning statements because they need to go back to their owners um, and say, this is, this is what we're doing every quarter because you're on a stock exchange or whatever. Um, and what they have to Uh, what structures they have to operate in are dependent on the governance that's set by government, uh, governments. Um, and those, the people who set those are in their jobs for, uh, the ministers who determine policy are in their jobs for, uh, well, not very long in many cases and rarely more than four years, um, and especially few at the moment in the UK. And so that there just really is very, very little sort of long-termism. And it uh, actually is one of the things I found very attractive um, is finding a company that really thinks about the 20-year future. So that's one of the pieces of work that I'm doing right now is what, where will we as a company be in 20 years? Um, but also know that we're trying to make sure that that's a, um, a place where we, where we make the world better to do that and embedding that in our strategy. That's really a great thing. So, but the, the, your, your, your challenge of, is that too little too late? My, my point of view for a number of years has been that we will only get companies to change their behavior when it comes to particularly the environment. But I think this could equally be applied to social tension um, or, or a number of other uh, societal challenges um, when it impacts them in a financial way. We're now seeing that companies are ahead of, uh, often ahead of the regulations because they see that this is going to impact them. Look at insurers, look at, um, there are a number of companies in the US who are going against the uh, direction of the 
Trump administration because they believe that it is in their interest to do that. How we create ways to make people think long term is really hard. I confess myself as an unconditional optimistic, and I do believe that human nature is good in principle, and I believe in the future, in a good future. And I think there is more and more people doing the right thing, trying to make a difference, trying to leave the world a better place and with a much more open, diverse, um, positive perspective, uh, people in, in powerful position. My question is, where do you stand? Do you have hope? Are these difficult times just a bump in the road and the road ahead is bright and we can make it together? Or your personal view is that we are heading towards the end of civilization as we know it. I'm asking you because in my circles I'm seeing two very polarized attitudes. People who are supercharged and doing their very best every day to serve other people and the world at large. And people who are feeling very defeated and trying to survive is all they can do. So something that stayed with me from the beginning of this conversation is your commitment and your values to do your job in a way that leaves that positive impact, um, that leaves the world in a better way, in a better shape than how you found it. So I am asking you, are your actions driven by a very bleak view of the future and therefore you wanted to cushion that, you wanted to counteract that bleak vision or from a very bright one and you want to contribute to that bright future. I know I am being very reductionist, but I just want to see the world through your eyes. Yeah, so genuinely I worry, particularly from a climate change perspective. Um, interestingly, the research on gener the generation that's coming up now um, is that they are more likely to be active and to drive change, which I think is fantastic. I realize millennials get tarred with a, a pretty pretty black brush when it comes to uh, when it comes to the amount of impact we really had on climate change. We we talked about it a lot, but we, did we change anything? I I hope that uh, the new generation will will demand more change and stimulate it. I but I I, I worry quite a lot if I'm if I'm truly honest. Um, I think it's also worth remembering that there are a lot of things that are better. Uh, and, and I urge people not to do this. Um, I watched, uh, rewatched Bridget Jones's diary, which I vaguely remember watching at school. Um, uh, watched that with, uh, in a sort of moment of nostalgia with my, with my girlfriend. And we, um, and we watched that and went, oh my God, this was like thought to be socially progressive. And a lot of this would get you properly fired, and um, and it's it's really bad. The difference in culture, in, in cultural attitude, and in this particular example, I'm referring to sort of women in the workplace, um, is a big step forward. I'm not saying it's enough steps by any means, but the world we're we're a, we've we've moved quite a long way, and it's easy to forget some of the, the good things that have happened. I also worried about the climate change, uh, but also I, I like to remember the positive things that we do and also what is the things that we can do every day from a physical perspective also because it's my my job to 
help people to get that state of mind to get into action and positive action. So, Graham, thank you so much. I would like to ask you the, the last question, I promise, which is, is there anything else that you would like to be asked that we haven't touched upon in this conversation? I really enjoyed talking about how businesses are just collections of humans. I think it's it, it's it's easy to forget that. I've really enjoyed talking about the fact that every interaction is is a performance and you meet someone the next day, but often in a in a corporate environment you can think about a lot of what you do as as a performance, as a moment where you have to be present and um, bringing something uh, and and making it making a difference in in that tiny little moment. Um, if I was going to talk about something a bit more, the thing I'd like to talk about would be that the uh, so firstly I don't think, unsurprisingly, that corporate is big bad. I'd like to be able to challenge the narrative that can be quite simple that says. Uh, making money is bad they try they focus too much on making money therefore they are bad um that can distract from people trying to do things a bit better the other thing that i think we kind of haven't talked about is that is how coming out of and i'm going to say an arts degree in in like the broadest possible sense of uh, i think this happens to people who are history or geography graduates as, as well but possibly to a lesser extent than a, uh, a performing arts degree. Um, but I think there's a lot of narrative that says that just because people have done a quote unquote soft course or start, uh, that they can't do hard topics and hard analysis. And that sort of people going, oh, well, maths is hard. I can't do it. I, I find deeply frustrating because I think often people can if they, uh, uh, I believe in people to be able to do that even if it wasn't easy when they first tried. Um, but I think that same is true that if, um, that there are some amazing places for people to work um, that can give them real energy and uh, empowerment and satisfaction that aren't, um, even if the, the path between where you are now and where that looks like could be a bit twisty and turny. Um, and that there'll be a lot of people who can't tell you, who tell you you can't do it. Um, or, and, uh, and even worse almost is, is, is when you're not told you can't do it, but feel that, get an impression that you can't. I think that's, that's very wrong. Um, it's about finding the right way to do things and how to uh, really bring out the, the skills and capabilities that you have. So I'd love, um, I'd love that to be a takeaway that we're that the most useful skills in the workplace today are mostly the soft skills. You can teach the hard skills, and so I would like everyone to believe in their potential to have a value-adding career, possibly in ways that they didn't, didn't expect, but still enjoy. Okay, let's go with one of the themes that we also discussed with humanhood, uh, Rudy and Julia, in our second episode. The blueprint of financial scarcity and how many artists live with it or through it. 
And that is a blueprint I really want to contribute to destroy. And I think that the root of that belief is because we think that money is evil, that earning money make us uh, bad people, or because plainly we do not deserve to have certain wealth, perpetuating the thought that dance industry does not allow having that wealth, that life, that quality of life. Is that something that you experience during your years within the dance industry? That was also your blueprint and something that you had to work through or because your upbringing, your mentors were coming from a completely different side is not that came to you in your factory settings. By default, you had a different blueprint. And if it's something that you had to work through, that you had to also destroy that scarcity blueprint, what would you share with us to help us to get rid of that blueprint to to contribute to destroy it? I remember being shocked at how much I was in financial terms worth. I remember when I had a, a rate card for how much my, my time was worth in, in, in pounds per hour um, and being and looking at that number and be that was uh, three, four figures uh, and being experiencing um, disbelief that, that I could truly be worth that. Um, so it was definitely a learned experience, a, a learned thing, but there's, there's something on the other side. So um, I think it's really worthwhile thinking about how much you're worth, not in terms of like cost, sort of cost of doing it, but in terms of the value that you bring. Um, and so to take your example, you're going in and helping people be um, uh, working with a company to help an individual be more effective in their work. You only need to make them a little bit more effective to give them a year of being more effective to make thousands and thousands of pounds of difference to um, to a company that tens hundreds when you're doing it across a few people. So if you've just made fifty thousand pounds for a company, that's how much you're worth, even if it was only three hours and it cost you five pounds on the tube to get there. Um, so, so, so firstly, that, there's, that's kind of the reframing of, of what are you worth? You're worth what you're, you're bringing to people. Um, and uh, the other side is, um, I remember talking of, about painting um, and uh, someone turning around and saying, yeah, you're, you're not paying for how long it took me to make the painting. You're paying for how long it took me to learn how to make the painting. Uh, you're paying for the 20 years that went into this. Um, and so, and I think it's very easy to underestimate that. Are you familiar with the anecdote of Pablo Picasso? Uh, I remember vaguely that Pablo Picasso was at Paris, I believe, uh, in a cafe, when a woman, an admirer, approached and asked him if he could do a quick sketch on a paper napkin for, for her. I think uh, Picasso agreed and created a, a small drawing and gave the napkin back to the woman. But before handing in the napkin, I think he asked for a large amount of money, like a million euros, something like that. The lady was shocked and told him, but how can you ask uh, so much if it took you only five minutes to draw this? And Picasso replied, no, it took me 40 years to draw this in five minutes. 
yes, value is a very hard thing to self-assess. Um, I remember speaking to an artist who was a, a theatre director, um, and she was thinking about doing training courses in the corporate world. And I said, and she was saying, "Oh, how much can I charge? Uh, uh, should I charge?" And I, I said, "Oh, it's. Uh, I think you should be charging at least this amount." And she went. No, you're kidding. I can't charge that. Can we talk about specific numbers for our listeners? Uh, I can't remember well enough, but it, uh, suffice to say, I was adding a zero to the uh, to the numbers she was uh, proposing. I, th I think it was moving from something like five hundred pounds to fifteen uh, hundred pounds an hour. Dear listeners, whatever you think that you need to charge when you offer one of those workshops, add a zero. That's a, from all of this, that's the nugget. Add a zero. That's a very valuable nugget. Uh, so let's go for the second one. There's something that I really liked about feeling that your life was not going to be certain, the uncertainty of being a performing arts uh, artist, not only in terms of uh, money, but also in terms of time and geography, probably. I'm putting words in your mouth, but I, I am expanding the, the meaning of uncertainty. And I really like it when you were saying about people with soft skills coming out of the performing arts careers or any kind of artistic education to be able to have that as a value and retrain if needed in other hard skills if that's going to be hard, but it's possible. Now, I encounter a little issue and let's see if you can help us to, to figure out. In the same way that I feel that many people who don't have a background in, in body education, in body practices, sometimes find it harder to know, to be aware of how they feel and therefore to find what they have to do. I found that many artists, they don't even have the awareness and the knowledge of what is possible. Therefore, if you don't see it, you cannot do it. What would be your other takeaway for those people who feel that it's something not right in their artistic careers or they want to combine with something else, how they would open the door or the windows of information? Because it's something that you don't ask to Google. What do I do if I don't want to be a dancer? Yeah, it's really tough because you, what you're asking about is a viewpoint into a different world. Um, and I was very lucky that in one or two points, I had a, a mentor or a person passing through my life who gave me a bit of good advice. Um, but that said, I think there are many people who are very lucky in, in, in areas where that's getting, being seen by the, um, the right talent scout or whatever it is that was in the, in the room at the time. There's, there's a lot of luck in, in the arts world. Uh, I think we should therefore foster good luck in the sense of uh in, in the sense of discovery so go out and talk to people um and sometimes you might want to actively seek areas that you don't know about uh, i think most people will find that even if their immediate friends are all in in one world that their uncle is in uh, is is closer to that world and most often People love to be connected, so we'll make that next introduction or find that next person for you. And sometimes it might take asking a few different directions and being a bit persistent. Um, but I think the one of the most helpful things you can do is go out and reach people. The other thing is finding those situations where the social rules are different. 
So if you walk into a careers fair, if you walk into a networking session, the social rules are, are different. You can um, talk to people and uh, be a bit more transactional about how you talk to people in a way that is accepted and expected in that environment. Um, and so go and find places where you can uh, where you can speak to lots of people um, quickly, sample, test, uh, and, and ask questions, get feedback um, that can help you discover things in the same way that I discovered consulting because I was at a finance fair looking for a more boring job. That's an excellent takeaway for our listeners as well who feel that something is not right or they are searching for something else but they don't know how to start and I think it's a great advice. Ask, ask, ask. Ask and, and sometimes uh, I find that you need to ask people to ask someone else on your behalf a, a recommendation will go a long way just to get a half hour conversation and in most cases taking half an hour out of someone's life to um to be helpful is uh it's not a great loss of time it doesn't really impact my my wider world but i do believe in the sort of circular economy in the sense that if i am generally helpful to people then hopefully they will generally be helpful to other people and that will come back around to me someday somehow we love that uh, idea uh, in order to finish because it's something that you mentioned a couple of times, that circular economy and that helping you because you will help someone else, that you will help someone else that at some point might help me or might help my kid or might help someone close to me. It's it's a great way to live our life. So Graham, I want to thank you because this conversation has been refreshing, has been confronting has been educational because even if I have a finger in the corporate world, sometimes because they are clients, I don't have these conversations with them. So therefore, for me personally, has been really refreshing and educational. And once again, I thank you your time and your expertise because in that circular economy, you are helping, I'm sure, lots of people who are listening to us now of getting new knowledge, new ideas, or a different perspective. And for that, I thank you very much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you, and I hope it's helpful. It was. Thank you very much, and I hope that we will speak soon again. Take care.